everyone to episode 40 of Room of Requirement. I am one of your co-hosts, Kamala Shrao. And with me, as always, is... Uh, Miracle Jones. Um, yeah, so everything that's possibly happened in the news has happened. Yeah. And now we're here to opine on it. Yeah. Because it's better than just talking to ourselves. <laughs> it's true. Just so much has happened. and I, Yeah, but none of it really seems to matter, so... <laughs> <laughs> you just lump it all into just like news. Yeah, yeah. exactly. Chaos. Chaos, yeah, yeah. Um, so I thought we would start this podcast by explaining to our listeners who we are and what we do. Oh, really? Have we just never done that? I feel <laughs> a little bit like we've just, we've sort of stumbled into having a podcast, and yeah. what and it's always helpful to know like what makes us a little different, and maybe what makes us. Uh, worth listening to. Yeah, yeah, that's a good good idea. Uh, well, well, let's let's do it. I who are you, Kamala Shrao? Hi, uh, my name is Kamala Shrao. I am uh, I am really nobody. I am someone who likes. <laughs> this is failing already. Uh, no, no, no. You can't do that. Okay, Not nobody. All right, okay. Kamala. Kamala Shrao. My name is Kamala Shrao. Um, I am a data scientist, yeah. and I used to be an economist and a bit of a talking head. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, so I am also a l- lifelong political junkie. Yeah. And I think I have always appreciated political debate. Like, what makes you different from other people that analyze politics and think about it? Uh, what makes me different? I'm not sure. I mean, I think this is a podcast on an amateur level of analysis, yeah, right? No, so yeah. I, we're not reporters, right? We don't yeah. have special inside information, nor are we professional political analysts, which is sure. both good and bad, yeah, right? Yeah. Um, I think political an- analysts have yet to acquit themselves of, <laughs> of the sort of failures of the past 5 to 15 years. I come from a background that is really about rigorous analysis of, of social phenomenon, right? So yeah. I think uh, between I studied economics and statistics, I expect things to be empirically true before I build any grand theories on them. You've seen a lot of data, like massive data sets about human behavior. I have. That's basically what I do all the time. Yeah. Massive data sets about human behavior. And I think it's really fascinating. I also appreciate the fact that there are things beyond data and there are things worth hashing out. And most importantly, I like the idea that I don't know everything. And one of the ways I learn is by talking to people who are also informed, like yourself. From, you're also from the south, right? And you're living in like Yankee paradise. Yeah. So <laughs> right. So I grew up in uh, Durham, North Carolina, yeah. and I grew up in a sleepy southern town. Uh, I grew up very far left, um, and, but then I was cured immediately of that when I came to college. <laughs> by, by far left, you mean like well, like communist? <laughs> uh, I actually, I think I was probably a socialist. socialist. Communist. Okay. Yeah. I mean, I was, you know, when I was 15, I was a communist, like right, everyone. Right. Come yeah. on. <laughs> um, so yes, I read Marx and uh, I read Marx and I read Engels and I read uh, oh some other crap socialists along the way. But what, what brought you into into that line of thinking? I guess as a in, in Durham. Well, I think I always liked it. I I liked politics. Yeah. And I liked philosophy. And at that time, the academia had yet to purge itself of Marxism, so that was where <laughs> things were flowing. Um, I liked... It's atheist. It tells a good story. It, it tells a good story. Yeah. It was so desperately flawed. Yeah. Uh, my father also grew up in a communist uh, state, uh, so it was, an ele- it was a popularly elected communist state, um, so we always had a little bit of a, a leftist streak in us. Yeah. So, I thought that was interesting, so that was my that was my introduction to politics. Um, I also liked being antagonistic, I will be honest. <laughs> that was a lot of what I was a young leftist activist. It was a lot about voicing an anger. I had no other uh, reason to be angry about. So why not politics? And then what sort of like turned you, I guess? You say you instantly sort of like snapped out of it. but that, that Oh, be- yeah. I was outflanked to the left by like rich Trustafarians when I went to college. <laughs> okay. I, I, I just found myself surrounded by people who were way more passionate about politics, way less informed, and just had less stake in the game, yeah. right? So I very sort of, uh, I guess there, it's almost a stereotype of, of rich, uh, ignorant, well-to-do leftists, right? So I always tell the story that my next-door neighbor in freshman year was actually a descendant of the Rockefellers, <laughs> and she was way more down for the revolution than I was. <laughs> right. And I was like, of course, because I have to work in four years. Of course I'm going to go, like, I have to, like, learn math and computer science so I have a job, right? Like, I just, 
I just felt like I was way outflanked. Yeah, um, we can do it right now. Pay my tuition. Right. <laughs> let's just let's fucking sort it out. Right. So we've got I've, I've got this vector analysis theory, right? Sure. So where do you stand? Like I'll ask you the four questions. The four questions. And you don't have to. You, you know, obviously you're not. You know, sure. You don't have to talk about the intensity. Sure. But so where do you identify as far as globalist v nationalist? I'm definitely a globalist. Okay. Yeah. yeah. So problem, but okay. Oh, sure. <laughs> globalist is the worst thing you can be in the world right now. Right? Sure. Okay, great. Yeah. The, great. Okay. You, you, you sold me on the position. <laughs> right. 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 I'm also a contrarian. Where yeah, is that? No, no. Instinctive contrarian. So rural versus urban. Uh, uh, I would say, I mean, urban in my uh, urban in my outlook, rural in my roots. Okay, so you're simply, you're a little bit not not as intense. But my dad's my dad's a villager. So, yeah, yeah, so just kind of in between. But Probably my heart is in the suburbs somewhere. Yeah. yeah. So okay. Uh, what about uh, neoliberalism, as in free market economics, versus like statism? Uh, statism, I suppose. I'm I'm more on the neoliberal side, but I mean I think there's a presence that are needed in terms of government and government spending, and I believe in the social net, uh, social safety net. So pretty much centrist as far as that goes. Centrist probably a little on the neoliberal yeah, side. Yeah, And then as far as, uh, I guess, like personal freedom versus uh, law and order. Right. I think there's another vector that we can talk about, like, uh, in terms of race. Where yeah. we, but I think in terms of, I'm actually probably centered at center law and order. Interesting. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. I actually, I, I, if I just want to be honest about yeah, that. Yeah, I know. Honesty is important. Yeah. Um, <clears throat> yeah, and I think there's probably one more about whether or not you get, is your philosophy driven by a religious outlook or uh, something else? But I think we haven't quite framed the fifth vector yet. Um, so, all right. So, that's me. All right. So, tell us about yourself, Miracle Jones. I, you know, I'm way less qualified to opine about politics than you are. Uh, but You're I'm, holding your own. <laughs> but uh, I'm, uh, I'm uh, a writer, uh, a fiction writer, uh, and I guess I, I feel like any contribution I bring to current political analysis comes from uh, a cultural understanding of uh, America that I feel is pretty robust. Uh, I'm from Texas, which is not a state that gets a lot of uh, cultural attention. Uh, most people are making fun of it uh, or angry at it. You know, then I moved to New York, and so I've lived in uh, t the two, I guess, like polar opposites as far as the current struggle for America's soul. How did you first get into politics? Yeah, no, my uh, I was I, I was raised hardcore libertarian. Okay, uh, my parent, my mom, and uh, stepfather are both you know Ayn Rand style objectivists. Uh, despite my mom being a fucking public school teacher. But, you know, sure. I, uh, I never really cared or bought into it, except for the, you know, I certainly believed in all the personal freedom elements. Sure. Uh, from, you know, freedom of speech to, you know, decriminalizing drugs. All that mm -hmm. made sense to me. But I, uh, as far as the economics of it, I basically just rolled my eyes and ignored it. As I did <laughs> the Catholicism, I was also raised with them. Uh, anyway, so then I got to college and, uh, you know, I, st I studied philosophy and, and English. And uh, I guess I just started reading, you know, more uh, of the, you know, 18th century Enlightenment thinkers and just kind of became, I guess, broadly a humanist. Uh, and that kind of puts me just right there in the center left uh, as far as the great tradition of uh, inquiry and coming to was there disputation. A, was there a philosopher you particularly liked in terms uh, of politics, a political philosophy? In terms of, in terms of political philosophy, uh, I really like George Bernard Shaw. I, okay. I would think you can call him a philosopher. Uh, he's kind of a socialist thinker, sure. definitely a contrarian, uh, definitely problematic, mm -hmm. uh, but a great writer. And I, I like the way that, I didn't like any of m many of his conclusions, but I like the way that he went about discussing and thinking about politics, which was narrative and sort of in conflict and, uh, and uh, definitely uh, problematic, but way better than the, than the totalist thinkers that you're put up against as far as like, you know, political. Interesting. I, I, I can see that in you. You want to craft stories out of political analysis. Yeah, I think, I think narratives are, are uh, interesting more and more. I think the myth-making of politics is way more interesting than answers. And I think we, we move based on myths. And I think we, that, that's what I'll, us. I'll agree with you. I just think that's hideous, right? Like, <laughs> yeah, yeah, it's not sure. good, but yeah. it's still true. But, uh, the, and, you know, I was a, I was a, uh, my, my, my uh, thesis 
my passion was in uh, epistemology, so definitely okay. a Humean. Uh, in which case, like, uh, I, I agree. I agree with you that you know you have to like analyze things, and you may not come to conclusions you like. Yeah, natural philosophy uh, has bounds to it, uh, and political thinking is probably not a science. Right, but one hundred percent. Yeah, I um. Yeah, it's an interesting point. I think we can talk about this forever, but I wanted to say, where do you place yourself on the four vectors? Yeah, no, no. So definitely, globalist, globalist versus nationalist. I, I'm definitely uh, a globalist, with the caveat that I think globalism supports specifically American nationalism. Uh, it is almost our like uh, our weapon in the world we invented it and i think deploying it it protects and serves america so i feel that i'm a globalist because i am patriotic rural uh, versus uh urban definitely urban 100 percent. but you grew up in rural america definitely did that's why I'm, i feel no love or like uh, uh nostalgia for it sure okay um <laughs> Personal freedom versus uh, law and order. Yeah, I'm pretty, pretty, pretty out there on personal freedom. Yeah. Uh, I, I guess I just have criminal blood, uh, and then the, I'm, I'm way, way more of a, uh, a, a statist than I, I guess I am a neoliberal. Yeah. Although I am fairly centrist for, uh, in a lot of ways, I definitely believe in free trade. I definitely. I'm not suspicious of capitalism or uh, right. banking, so I don't know where that puts me, actually. Yeah, somewhere in between, I think. Yeah, I feel like a, a Roosevelt Democrat. All right. Uh, so I think we've talked a little bit about where we come from. Yeah. Uh, so what makes our podcast different? Or are we actually different? Uh, you know, I, I think we both are way more interested in sort of long-term effects than we are in the short-term maneuvering of, yeah. of either of these political parties and all the personalities that are involved. All right. Uh, and it, I think we, we both have are interested in history and just the way things have transpired and uh, continue to transpire and where things are in the greater like puzzle uh, of human events, right? Right. I, I also think that in in some ways we are more concerned about the getting to an answer than coming to the podcast with an answer, right? Yeah, so no, that's the part thing. of this is both in uh, terms of debate and learning. Thinking uh, in real time. Yeah, yeah, thinking in real time, but it's also about uh, kind of getting to an answer, and also I, uh, talking about it is a form of, hey, there's a lot coming at us. Yeah. This is how we're going to process it. The other thing, uh, the other thing I want to point out is that we actually, and I keep using this term, but we do come sort of from the center left. We actually have certain ideologies that bind us, right? Yeah, and I think definitely. that's relatively unique, right? We're pro-free trade, uh, pro-free speech to some degree, uh, to a fair degree. And I think we come, we fall in terms of, into the center in terms of like economics and other things, right? So that's a shrinking population, right? Like I think we're being out, uh, certainly the the wings of whatever party are growing, right? Like we are, the, the left and the right are growing in fervor and enthusiasm and are becoming more ideologically uh, cohesive and also intolerant so uh, we kind of we're getting smashed in the center also just the method and i think in which we the method in which we seek and deploy discourse i believe puts us in the center-left tradition as yeah. opposed to the uh the methodology that you'd see pretty prevalent in today's like online culture right and i think the one thing um the one thing that distinguishes our podcast from, say, a lot of other political l- podcasts, even ones that have really similar points of view, is that we are here to kind of hash out things we care about, right? And we are here to debate them and probably learn, but we're also hearkening to an idea that it's important to have good solutions, right? Like it's our own kind of our own kind of belief in technology technocracy right technocrats is how we believe it like that problems social problems are hard they don't come from easy solutions right and i feel like there are a lot of podcasts out there that are make certain assumptions that you come from this party you have a certain core beliefs you may need to fill in some details but in general your policy assumptions are well laid out and i feel like you just need to crush the opposition in order to make have total power in order to enact your solution right and i feel like there's just needs to be a lot more groundwork in terms of of ideology and policy and i feel like in my way of thinking the left at least has became pretty lazy i think in terms of trying to understand what is good policy they sort of put a lot on autopilot 
uh, during the Obama years, right? They didn't have to think about government. So now that they have to think about a government, I think the immediate rush is to do something. And my my honest, I think that's fine, and I think there are plenty of people who will give you pass to do something or feel something. But my my preference is to make sure that we understand why we're doing things and whether or not that's the right path forward because no political party or philosophy has all the answers and that's something that we kind of forget in this tribal fight for domination yeah for sure and uh, also no people who believe things are necessarily bad people i mean there's no i don't know that there is such a thing as a good person but i definitely know there's no such thing as a good political party uh it's it's all just attempts to take to exert control and power and influence for right. ideally maybe good outcomes but you know the uh, entire political game is uh, fallen debased and uh, immoral uh, that being said I, it's, it's fascinating and i love it yeah <laughs> right exactly in order to engage i think you understand that you're entering a world that will forever color you yeah and, yeah. and taint your soul yeah right. yeah so i think that's that's what makes our podcast unique um and I guess the other question is, why do we always start talking about ourselves? Yeah, I mean, I think I think uh, it is important to always highlight the fact that politics has an emotional toll, and people come to politics for emotional reasons. Right. And uh, also, just like keeping yourself sane is a good way to keep from slipping into the abyss of like total political systems. Or right. <laughs> and I think the uh, and you're touching upon the fact that I think we're all sort of drowning in this onslaught of news. Um, information, political events that is really hard to parse through and part of the way that we deal with this is we talk to each other every week. Yeah. yeah. Right? So this is talk therapy as much as it is political analysis. Yeah, and it's the room of requirement. This is our chance to, you know, uh, defend ourselves against the dark arts. Right, absolutely. And if you look at the dark arts these days as the uh, weaponized social media slash like assault on truth and facts that the uh, all sides have decided to deploy for short-term ends yeah uh, skepticism and just maintaining your own body slash souls uh, information parsing apparatus through like uh, men's you know qu- healthy mind and a healthy body uh, is, right. is the the uh, is, a, is a good way to go about it yeah i agree uh, Let's get on with the rest of the podcast. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so every podcast usually do, opens up with us talking about ourselves. Yeah. Then we talk about politics. Then we talk about <laughs> random shit, doubling down defeat, or uh, outside, outside the, the bubble. bubble. So yeah. uh, how am I doing? I am fine, I think. I uh, I went to the doctor, and it sort of uh, uh, measured out the fact that I probably my health has uh, slackened off over the past six months. I'm not getting as much exercise. I'm not, getting, I'm not eating as well. That's fine. Um... Uh, it's only six months. I'm adjusting to a new job. I would say though that my outlook in my uh, emotional life is much better, right? Like yeah, I'm just you so are, you are happier. I yeah, with, say yeah. That. yeah. I'm way happier about yeah. my job, and that's just it. Just radiates out. I think I'm starting to get a, to a place where I'm doing other things outside of my job, and that's also making me happy. So, mental health totally good. Uh, physical health, I need to be a little bit more disciplined about. It's just harder to keep up with things once you cross. 19. <laughs> True. So, you you know, I would say you're way less stressed out than I've ever seen you. You yeah. seem, like, happier, more put together, yeah. and just, like, more solid. Uh, but what, so what, what can you, what can you realistically do to get out there and to, like, and is there, is there a way to, like, make time? Is there a gym at your office, or? Yeah, I think it's, it's about, so there's no gym at my office. There's a gym, I and mean, there's a blink really close to okay. it. Um, so I, I have to, I have to kind of cut out that time to make sure that I'm trying to exercise every day. I think one of the things I need to do is figure out a way to like uh, maybe just try to exercise a little every day, so yeah. like half an hour, as yeah. opposed to me, I usually go for a long time, and I, and as I'm like, if I'm putting on weight, like it's harder for me to run, so I don't run as, as fre- frequently, so I, I just have to make sure that I, I get out there, I find a couple of things that I really enjoy, and then kind of, re- yeah. You don't, you don't like riding a bike. I don't like riding. I like my front teeth, that's why. Uh, <laughs> like no. a, at the gym. Oh, no, that's terrible. <laughs> Just because it's a little, like, lower impact than... Oh, right, right. It's well, a good way to get... Did I ever tell it. you about Mile High Running Club? No. no. <laughs> so it's spin class, but for treadmills? That is horrifying. That's exactly what I said to my wife, and she kept telling me about it, and finally she went and she's like, 
you're going to really like this. And when my wife says I'm really going to like this, there's about an 80% chance I'm really going to like it. I'm like, I was like, I called her out. I was actually training for a marathon then. Yeah. And I said, and I went and I was like, you're right. I really like this. <laughs> they just yell at you while you're on a No, it's like super supportive. Like I, I can't explain to you why it works, but for some reason, all everything that sounds completely asinine about a spin class but with treadmills yeah. actually works. Interesting. So what happens, I think, so if you're like a runner, right, like you fall into routines pretty easily, and this is something that cause someone else is coming up with your routine. Yeah. Uh, you're, it, it sort of shocks your system and changes things. Um, it forces you uh, to... Um, follow someone else's program with uh and i think especially runners get lazy with like interval training and things like that this is all about that kind of stuff so like varying your intensity over 45 minutes or whatever um it's a boutique gym so it's kind of obnoxious that way but uh, i do it through class pass so it's cheap so it's a 45 minute run every time that's pretty long run yeah so it's it is but it's um it's interval so it'll be like you know five minutes of run two minutes of rest five right, minutes of run right, to yeah, me, yeah, that yeah, kind of yeah. thing yeah um, and depending if there are shorter programs mixed in with like weights afterwards or something like that but yes mile high running club I thought it was sounded asinine it's kind of amazing I think it's actually really good for people who run regularly yeah. because it just changes your it changes your, your workout a little stress you out a little bit probably gets you in shape in a way yeah. you weren't expecting yeah. Um, yeah so but like I think it's a good if you can like get you know, I think a 30-minute run is probably pretty good for yeah. you, no matter how far you're going or how fast you're doing it. Yeah, I think so. And I just have to get better about, like, just doing that as much as I can. Like, is there a way to, to, like, do it in the middle of the day? or? I think middle of the day hard? is hard, but I think if I either start the day or end the day with it, like, it's a firm commitment, then I think that'll be easier for me. But I, I just don't have the kind of flexibility that I once did. Right. Well, you also just, like, you just started out. You know, mm-hmm. It hasn't been a year yet. Yeah. Um, um, but how are you, man? Ah, you know, I'm good. Like, still reeling with some health issues, but, you know, what can you do? It's nothing life-threatening. It's just annoying. Kind of slows me down, though. But uh, also, the winter is, like, my body is starting to physically reject the winter. (laughs) You know, like, it is, it's, you know, the end of March, and there's no end in sight. At this point in the year, I'm always just, like, defeated. Yeah. It's just, like, all my resources are spent, and just, like, I guess it's going to be winter forever now. Like, yeah. I can't. I can't remember the sun. Yet. Yeah. So this was being recorded. I think two on a Tuesday, yeah. the twentieth. And I, uh, yeah, tomorrow it's gonna snow. It's gonna snow like six to eight. Inches. It's insane. You know, yeah. I tell myself every year, like spring doesn't happen until oh, May. Yeah. You know, but in my body, that that that's not true. So no. I am ready for spring, and it is not happening. And I do not know why. <laughs> spring is not ready for you. Yeah. Yeah. So uh, so that has like takes a psychological toll. I'm very affected by. It. Uh, the seasons having grown up in a place without them yeah uh, just like the one summer. Un- yeah <laughs> so someone who uh, uh works for me uh she's from south india so chennai oh right yeah yeah and similar so, similar climate to houston yeah, yeah. I, I think it's it's hotter um <laughs> similar similar it's got a rainy season and yeah you know, yeah it's got a monsoon yeah. yeah um so yeah chennai and yeah she the first time she came to like cold weather was new york city two years ago or something like that and she's like i'm still not used to it i can't handle this right? yeah yeah uh yeah it's rough it's rough that's why there's not a lot of houston giants plants in the east coast <laughs> but uh yeah so I, I think that will end eventually and then i'll feel great like yeah. that first day of spring is really gonna hit me hard this year <laughs> <laughs> but uh yeah so you know just trying to stay in shape and buckle down it's not too far away so closer to the end now than it is the beginning yeah um, ready to get into the actual meat of of the past couple weeks oh yeah let's talk a little bit about politics then all right um so a lot has happened but in some ways nothing has happened do you want to just go through everything that's happened? sure let's just list mm-hmm. all the everything th- we can remember <laughs> right and list the important things that have happened and i think this falls under is Trump's sphere and the rest of the world. Yeah, right. Also that. Uh, yeah, and so within the Trump sphere, right, there are co- a number of things happened. I mean, the biggest headline was that he fired Rex Tillerson, his yeah. Secretary of State, and replaced him with Mike Pompeo. Yeah. Um, and at the same time, uh, I think another thing that happened in the Trump sphere in terms of firing is that Andrew McCabe lost his job about 
within d- two days of having to retire and right uh, just for cruel reasons for probably no right reason. yeah. yeah so the uh, I, in this case it was Jeff Sessions who fired Andrew McCabe yeah um, certainly it looks like there was a lot of uh, thumb on the scale sure. as it were in yeah. terms of the timing of the firing or the investigation he was recommended to be fired by the FBI uh, that should be said yeah and I think by uh, someone who has actually had a relatively nonpartisan past yeah. so it's not really clear exactly the timing I think the timing looks very political maybe not the actual issue at hand but so that is those are kind of the two highlights of what's going on um, we're also seeing ongoing uh, issues with the Mueller probe um, hints of what's coming up I know that the Mueller probes team uh, has forwarded questions to the legal team of Donald Trump. The Trump. We now know that the Trump organization's records have been subpoenaed. Yes. Uh, so uh, this may or may not have to do with some of the temper tantrums, that the tweet tantrums that <laughs> Donald Trump himself had over the weekend. Uh, it may also be speeding up some of the issues in terms of political. I don't know. What do you want to call this? Chaos? Yeah, chaos. Yeah. It's all chaos. Uh, then, you know, uh, Donald Trump Jr. and his wife have filed for divorce. Yes. Uh, uh, there are small. allegations of, error, of an affair. Yeah. Uh, Stormy Daniels, uh, who is a porn actress, um, the, is either seeking uh, an injunction or is, is trying to put forth that she's going to break her NDA, uh, which was, and, there, and then now I think the Trump uh, legal team is trying to sue her yeah. uh, to keep quiet. Um, speaking of which, uh, there are uh, there were rumors or there were actually confirmations that the Trump team had all the people who worked with, for the Trump administration sign NDAs, right. which is um, apparently not legally enforceable and violates a basic ethos of open government. Yeah, and the ACLU has declared this unconstitutional. Uh, Right. It's I mean, that's, that's slightly less effective than me writing a comic book about it. <laughs> right, right, right. That's slightly at, more effective. At the same time, uh, the... But my webcomic... <laughs> the ongoing uh, uh, question into the legality or social utility of NDAs continues. Right. Uh, from the Trump administration to Weinstein to everywhere on down. Can you silence people using the law uh, right. with money attached to it? Uh, and one last thing, I think Trump has moved to increase tariffs against the Chinese to the order of about $60 billion, I think. In addition, Cambridge Analytica, his uh, campaign analytics company, has been uh, is now under investigation by the British government. Uh, its CEO has resigned. They've been revealed to be utterly corrupt in basically every way possible. And right. Right. Which is weird because they work in politics. So <laughs> yeah, I would right. expect it more from them. Cambridge is in their name. And that is an <laughs> August institution. Sure. sure. Uh, any, anyway, uh, uh, that's not that's not even half of it. There was a banking re- uh, regulation. There was appeal back for on regulation for banking. Yeah. Uh, you wanted to bring up there was um, a resolution to uh, I guess like remove ourselves from supporting Saudi and Yemen, which was voted down. Uh, so that was a set, you know, Sanders v. Tim Kaine affair. Right. Uh, my two least favorite people in all of politics. <laughs> it's like duking it out. Um, um, <laughs> and in the meantime, uh, PA 18 turned blue. Yeah, so Connor Lamb defeated uh, Sakone mm-hmm. uh, in a district which will no longer exist in six months. So, a really big moral victory, but utterly meaningless in every way. A way uh, to spend your money. Yeah, to, probably twenty million dollars was spent on this like yeah. uh, headline. Yeah, sure. Uh, anything else? <laughs> Is that it? <laughs> I mean, there are some other things, but I think that's about it. Yeah, yeah. So there's a lot. There's right. a lot happening, but all of it kind of doesn't amount to much, right? Right. So there's a lot of noise. I would say what's important is I think I think the Tillerson firing is somewhat important. It's not really clear. Uh, I, I think policy will change, but I think more important what's happened is you put it someone who's fairly loyal and competent in the position of the State Department. Let's right? t- let's talk about this. So I one of the on our first podcast I think, maybe it was our second one, I I brought I thought that Rex Tillerson was gonna be a thorn in the side of the Trump administration. Uh, just as a person with very small, limited moral fiber, that was going to be enough to really fuck things up. Yeah. Right? He, yeah. 
uh, I just figured he was a conser a conservative, like a capital C conservative. Yeah. If he, you know, wasn't the really, Boy really wasn't interested in, you know, the uh, Kofifi Republic, right? He right. was very much wanting a typical Republican regime yeah. and with typical Republican foreign policy. And right. as the head of, or the Secretary of State, his network of contacts were typical Republicans. Right. Uh, and seeing him go, I think we will miss him. I think we'll miss what he brought to the team. Um, uh, which is uh, doing nothing. <laughs> <laughs> well, I think I would actually point out that he was a particularly bad Secretary of State no in his relationship with the quote unquote deep state or the State Department, right? So while sure, he was true. while he was doing more or less what you uh, outlined, right, that he was trying to follow a Republican policy. He was alienating the people who worked for him, right? Yes. So it was, he was trying to consolidate power within the State Department. He was allowing a lot of positions to be unfilled. Uh, there's a lot of talk about how this is gratuitous. I think it's a hard, it's a hard argument not to make or not to believe in, yes. And, and, but what effectively happened was that he neither got along with his boss, Trump, yeah, nor did he get along with his people. Right. So this makes him, and he, I, and again, he tried to locate power into a small circle of advisors, which may be how he governed effectively a CEO position. Sorry, how he was an effective CEO of Exxon, but was a pretty bad way to run a large bureaucracy um, or a political entity. No question, but I think it's going to come down to, would you rather the State Department be empty or to be filled with the Donald subreddit? Like right. what? What do you do? You want? Do you think like a, an inactive, like useless State Department is better than a subreddit actively prosecuting the aims and goals of the Trump administration's uh, foreign policy, which is isolationist? And right. I I'll agree with you. Right. So I think Donald Trump and whomever will. Uh, so Donald Trump and Mike Pompeo, Mike Pompeo's outlook is terrible. Yeah. Right. I don't agree with it in any way. I don't see it. I think we're put in a position to mourn a person who is particular one of the one of the weakest secretaries of state in a long time, which is Rex Tillerson. Right. Just because we have a fear of what's coming. I, I guess I liked the idea that Trump had a withered right hand, you know, and I don't, oh, right. I don't want this to be replaced with like an iron one. Yeah, it is absolutely being replaced by someone who is both um, sympathetic to his outlook, which is terrible. Uh, sympathetic to his prejudices, which is reprehensible, and then also effective, an effective leader. Right, and an, also another, uh, another you know, military man, top of his class at West Point, right. a former CIA director. Right. I mean, yes, I, I, that's that's true. He, he, but he came into politics as a as a congressman. Right. 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 But he certainly has the outlook and attitude of. Uh, of bellicose. Uh, Actually, I was reading something. Uh, there's an editorial in the Economist is that he shows all the signs of someone who went into the military but didn't stay. <laughs> That's true, right? That's because true. there's something more uh, thoughtful and burned by the battlefield about people who have actually spent a long time commanding in the military. Right. right like, no, which is even more terrifying. Right. right. Like, so, I, like I, he's I, got an arrogance about him yeah, and a okay. forcefulness that means that he went from success to success because he didn't stay to learn painful painful lessons you learn when commanding uh, large groups of people. Yeah, and, you know, I think we can, you know, every time I hear Trump say, you know, Mike Pompeo and I think alike, or he's, you know, I really, we really get along. All yeah. I hear is that Mike Pompeo is very good at controlling Donald Trump, right? Yeah. Like, he's got, he's figured out the, the way to uh, whisper to him in a, in a way that uh, yeah. is effective and Donald Trump does not see how he's being manipulated, right? Right, yeah. I mean, it, there's a man, you have to cater to his ego, yeah. and I think some people are learning that lesson or have spent the last year in change learning that lesson. Right, and the the position he's acceded to that he's uh, taken is a very powerful one, uh, right. and he's managed to get into it without the, you know, uh, coming from a cabinet position or a, a vetted one into another one without yeah. any sort of oversight on right. how that works. It's a very smooth lateral move uh, and uh, I admire his cunning. I don't know what the government will look like with him at the helm of 
definitely a position that Donald Trump knows nothing about, right? Right. Like, and uh, I'll point out that he made his rise politically as a hard right Republican yeah. who's who has certainly skated around uh, certain issues and really embraced a really ugly, bigoted view of, I think, Islam. I think he's certainly buddy-buddy with uh, some very ugly think tanks along the way. There's no reason to believe that he will uh, do right by the left by any means. He is a certainly partisan. I think he definitely moved the head of the CIA toward some more partisan territory, um, which is an unheard of in this time and age. But, yeah. yeah. Uh, so th there's nothing good, I think, from our perspective that comes from a Mike P Pompeo, uh, Mike Pompeo leadership of the State Department. Uh, additionally, this the 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 silver lining is this disentangles Texas completely from the Trump administration, right? Like removing Rex Tillerson <laughs> yeah. uh, is the, that was the sop to the largest, you know, the backbone of the Republican Party, uh, Texas or whatever. So now they have no in, they have no uh, buddy on the inside watching over and spreading Texas influence. I don't know how big of an effect that will have, but it's certainly something. I mean, and yeah. right now it's definitely a coalition of uh, of Eastern and Midwestern dirtbags, right? Yeah. Leaving out uh, Texas and, you know, instead having, I guess Jeff Sessions is the token Southerner, but Donald Trump never misses an opportunity to shit on him. Yeah. So I'm. I think. I think it's. A, it's weird that the the, the Carolingians are are uniting against him, right? Or I guess South Carolingians. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. So South Carolinians, uh, Trey Gowdy. Yeah. I think it's and it's and Texans are have not united against him yet, but that's not their style anyway. They'll, yeah. They'll uh, smooth if they if they warm out, they'll smoothly do a coup that will uh, yeah. bring in uh, actual power. South Carolina is very good at stirring shit up. They're not particularly... Yeah. They don't have much of a tax base. <laughs> but, you know, South Carolina is the... You know, you have Graham, Tim Scott, and yeah. Gowdy, right? Yeah. Those are all three very charismatic, very powerful... People who punch above their weight. Way above their weight. Tremendously above their weight. Get it right? together, North Carolina. <laughs> Get it together. <laughs> right. So, uh... Anyway, I'm, I, the Rex Tillerson firing I, was uh, very scary, and I think it will be scary for to see what Pompeo does with his new power. Yeah, I mean, it's definitely going to move to a more hawkish stance, right? But it's the State Department, not the Defense Department. Right. right. So, you know, yeah, true. Uh, however... I think know, the, the rhetoric becomes hawkish. I don't... And I think the policies become hawkish. Like, I... You know, we're walking away from Iran. Mm -hmm. That the the JPCOA, I think, is dead. Effectively, we won't sign any treaties. But w whether or not we go to war, I think Jim Mattis is still. I think Jim Mattis is either a, stor uh, a thorn in his side or some bulwark of reason um, against whatever craziness Trump can pull off out of his rear. What do you think is going to happen uh, with North Korea now? It's something we didn't mention, the proposed North Korea summit that will take place in May. Uh, uh, I don't think it'll happen. May yeah. is too soon. I would be really shocked if, if anything happened. I think it'll get uh, brushed under the rug, and no one will really talk about it once that deadline comes and goes, like so many other deadlines. <laughs> I mean, part of it is politics. Part of it is just the bluster of the Trump administration. Uh, he'll find someone to blame it on. I also think that it's not in his nature uh, to be kind towards the Korean Peninsula. He yeah. sees that as a way that we are wasting money, uh, <laughs> and he feels antagonistic towards it. So I, I don't know. I think the the rhetoric will go on. I think if the talks fail or break down, the real risk is on the North Korean side. Like, do they do something desperate to get more attention? Because this may or may not seem like a gambit to them, right? Um, so it could ratchet up tension. The failure could ratchet up tension, but it, in this case, it would be ratcheting up tension, I believe, on the North Korean side. North Korea eliminating its missile program, its nuclear missile program, in return for the elimination of sanctions and a meeting with the president, uh, sort of legitimizing the Kim regime, is a huge victory for North Korea, right? That right. is, like, a tremendous, like, that is a century, you know, spanning victory for them. That is their ultimate goal, right? Right. Do we give them that? No. 
We never do. So I, I but I mean, here's the. I mean, it, it, do people care how big of a victory that would be for North Korea? Because uh, do people understand the history there and why? I mean, would this be seen as a victory for so, Trump slash Putin? Right. Right. So I I think the likelihood of that happening is nil, and I think this is separation of powers. Right. Mm-hmm. So Trump may push something like this forward, um, but. At this point, the Republicans have to. There's no way they can rationalize legitimizing uh, the presidency of whatever he's going to call himself, presidency, the Duchesse of North Korea, right? So they will uh, be happy if Trump manages to secure something like giving up nuclear weapons. That's great, but they will never. The Republican Party and the Democratic Party will not. Uh, give legitimacy to a dictator. I think the Senate goes up in arms. They, I, it would be my guess would be it would be the first bill they put in front of the president that he vetoes that they override. Mm, interesting. That's, you think it would come to that? I, absolutely. I think on North Korea, almost all the Republicans would, very few Republicans would would allow Donald Trump to do something truly, truly crazy like stand down all sanctions against North Korea. But that you know, he would ha- Trump would probably carry with him forty percent of the people, right? So you'd be so Maybe. the Republicans would have to be going against the electorate to do that. If Trump were out there saying what we want is peace, right? I think he would appeal people from the left on that too. People who are like, this is finally something good mm-hmm. Trump is doing, brokering peace with North Korea for a and a theoretical war that isn't happening, right? The uh, you know. I think you're underestimating how little the left wants to give Donald Trump any even notion of victory. Mm-hmm. So that's the thing. So like one of the clips that was floating around the interwebs uh, over the past couple of days was uh, clips for um, Fox News uh, talking about Obama trying to thinking about talks with North Korea <laughs> and how up in arms <laughs> they were. Um, they were when even the mention of talking to North Korea's dictator, um, and then you interpose and that was interposed with uh, clips now where they're completely supportive, mm-hmm. right? So I think on the one hand, I think the left is completely tribal about this, right? So if Obama had done it, they would be like, oh, that would have been really interesting. Um, I think Trump's popularity limits the popularity of his proposals. I don't know. I think I think Bernie Sanders would be all in for a Trump Putin North Korea summit. I feel like that's not true. I feel like again you're underestimating how how much when Trump turns something in whatever Trump touches turns to Trump. Yeah. Yeah, and so there's there's no policy you can put forth that doesn't have uh calculus of whether or not you support Trump behind it. Maybe, but you know, you're forgetting South Korea also wants this. You know, the new leadership of South Korea is also mm. pushing for some sort of summit meeting. You know, it's an existential problem. For well, them. I think they're better off creating a web comic. <laughs> yeah, they could actually work with me. So the you know protest. <laughs> I, I'm I'm very glad that Japan has increased their intelligence budget. <laughs> That's all I got to say about that, right? Yeah. I'm glad that Jed, the Jet, you know, they yeah. have unleashed funds for you know no. their own. But you know, we'll see. We'll see. I think it's I think it's a developing. I don't think I think it is. I don't think there's anything anybody can say about this that I I, I can see anything happening. Really, no. truly anything. There are a I bunch of no bad decisions. Yeah. I think Trump's willingness to embrace chaos may be constrained by people like Mattis and also the Conquers. Yeah. I this mean, may be one of those issues where it may his he can be crazy about gun control or whatever nonsense he wants he can talk about being sympathetic with the Klan, but I think when it comes to things like North Korea where there's actually an existential threat for the US, I think Congress will snap too. I think it I think it's a race between the Mueller investigation and, and the North Korea I summit. Think, <laughs> you forget there's also a, a uh, a timeline because everything has to be wound up by November. That's true too. It's true too. But yeah, uh, the way things are looking, um, I think that's it for foreign policy. Sure, at least yeah. the American view of foreign policy. Uh, there are a couple of things. Maybe uh, did you want to talk a little bit about Cambridge Analytics? Yeah, it's a fascinating. Uh, I think you probably have more to say on and that's interesting about this than probably anybody yeah. I know. So I'm curious as to what your read on the whole thing is. Well, as I th- somebody who's worked with large data sets and human behavior. Yeah, and uh, and privacy issues yeah. galore. So I am curious to see what actually gets turned up. I think what has happened is 
that all of a sudden it's come to light that Cambridge Analytics does what it does, mm -hmm. right? I don't think if you had asked if they had, I am super curious what the difference between Cambridge Analytics is doing and say what uh, whoever ran the Obama administration social uh, outreach uh, program in 2012 or 2008 looks like, right? Like, so, I mean, uh, we've even had someone on our podcast talk about how much astroturfing they did. Yeah. Right? So uh, there are dirty deeds done, dirt done, dirty deeds done, dirt cheap, right? Like, yeah. that's, I mean, the whole point of, uh, of modern analytics and data collection platforms and micro-targeting is that you are able to, for very cheap, target individuals um, by trying to engage them. And engagement is a very easily measured, shallow metric of what you are doing with an individual. Like liking them or having them have their eyeballs engaged for 30 seconds may be that metric, right? Um, so what is the difference between Cambridge Analytics and uh, the Democrat side? Um, they, there are some really ugly connections, I think, if you're talking about uh, a political campaign organizer or political analysis group that flirts with the far right on in the UK and the right uh, in the US, and they're obviously going to have ties to some pretty unsavory groups um, in on right-wing Republicans or right-wing organizations in Europe and probably has some ties to the Kremlin. But if you wanted to be honest about it, are you going to tell me that the, the Democrats are free from this kind of same ugly, weird um, influence from abroad? I don't, I don't think so. I think what we are in is in an age where these kind of micro-targeting strategies are cheap. Um, even a disorganized campaign like Donald Trump's can do it. I think that it, they're not super effective, so it would be hard to prove that just because you put this in front of 100,000 Kansans, you delivered 80,000 to the polls that wouldn't have voted. So I think influence, like exposure to some information may not be the same thing as influencing behavior. I think that's a hard thing to prove on either side. Um, and I think that, I, I think it's, it's not that the Democrats don't use this. It's not that micro-targeting. It's a technology that's available to other people. Um, and so it's, uh, it t you know, technology in its own way is amoral and nonpartisan, right? So I am, I am somewhat skeptical that Cambridge Analytics, as far as what I know, has done anything super egregiously wrong. Um, I don't know enough to... Uh, to 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 really talk about it, I think they are, but they're scummy. Like, uh, but that's not to say that they aren't scummy. Like, and they don't do things like bribe politicians with prostitutes. But I also just think that that's done in politics. Like, no matter what side you're on, I think that coordinating with WikiLeaks and Russian intelligence to uh, spread the information strategically that was hacked from the DNC is something that goes across the line. That interests I, I will say that that crosses the line. Yeah. I to, So I am under the impression that that has not been proven. Not yet. proven, but... So I, that's where I'm yeah. drawing the line. Right. So Cambridge Analytics is a scummy group that works for Republicans. I will say that there are equally, I would say, technologically driven, amoral companies that work across the lines and actually work on both sides of the fence, right? They're out there to micro-target. They're out to, like do all sorts of really ugly negative campaigning. That's the bread and the butter. I think on the right side, I think the left tends to blanch at what the right considers okay. Like um, certain amounts of uh, ginning up the base with really ugly kind of um, uh, identity politics, white identity politics stuff that just wouldn't fly. But I also think that uh, some of the Democrat stuff isn't great either. So... Um, again, I think I see it as much of more of a technology and morality issue than um, something that looks egregious now. I will revise this opinion if I, they've proven to have directly coordinated with foreign governments. Yeah. Also, it's uh, it's it's definitely something that could do with some regulation. Uh, For I, sure, I think that there were regulations. Yeah, or extension of regulation. Yeah, that uh, to you know uh, similar 
I guess, like, regulations as TV and radio could now start applying to social media. Yeah, I think that's hard, though. Like, I mean, social media is generated by people, right? It's right. A, so this is a, this is a, it's a peer-to-peer network, right? So you license um, your broadcast rights from the government, so the government has some reason and incentive to control these sort of top-down distribution networks of entertainment and content. But if it's peer-to-peer, content is harder to police. And in, and there's nothing wrong with that. I think there's something very good about it. It's just that you're proving how brutal that can be every time you go onto Facebook or Twitter because it, people and people who are pretending to be people or entities pretending to be people can be really brutal. Right, there's no way to stop it, but there's also no like penalty structure right now for if people are caught doing something like shit. There's no risk, right? right? So right now there's no reason not to, right? right? You have nothing at all stopping you from mounting one of these campaigns. In fact, they're massively successful. Right. So why would you even blanch or hesitate at having some sort of ethics about it? In fact, if you don't do it, you're a fucking idiot, right? Yeah. So I think there should be some sort of like, right, you know, you're not supposed to like hold back uh, a pocket district and count those ballots left last you know last in an election right everybody does it but if you get caught you know there is some you know you people do file lawsuits about this and there is some you know structure in place to to have this election looked at right yeah almost never happened yeah that, that raises the barrier yeah and uh, i think it raises I, the cost for that right kind of and i think we need to understand what's possible in order to start watching each other better as yeah. far as and understanding how i i think coming into the 2016 election people were insufficiently aware of uh, the way this kind of thing was even possible, right? right? They were suspicious that it even took place, yeah. right? Everybody knows or has some immunities to TV and radio advertising these days. Right. They don't have immunities to... They, they believed, as you do, as you just elucidated, and as I do too, that peer-to-peer network-style electioneering comes from the people, right? And it's like somehow more honest than other forms of, of media are spreading, which I well, agree with. I, I yeah, I, would, I, I never wanted to imply that it was more honest. Right. I just think it's more distributed. Well, yeah. I mean, but right, but the the idea is it's more effective because it's from right. somebody theoretically that you know or that is a real person, not like a right. Head. Yeah, there, there's an affectation of that. I would right. argue against. It. I just think that my. I just think that it doesn't. It's not funneled or granted a license from the government, so the government's control over it is much more suspicious. There's a virtue in having this kind of disaggregated content provider. But yeah. Uh, there's also a real brutality behind it. And it's a, I, I would say it's an even more effective form of, I don't know, uh, information control and dissemination than radio and television. Except for the fact that you're being drowned out all the time by other people who have who are also facing low barriers to entry in terms of content provision. There's that, but the trust is higher. I just think that it's... it's I think that'll go over time. It will, over time, yes. and that. But this is one of those, like... But that's uh, true with, I think, most most media, right? Right, but this is one of those cracks in it, you know? Why do you think... So why, why were FDR, uh, Roosevelt, and Mussolini so effective? Because they'd mastered the radio. Radio, yeah, no question. Uh, that was a very extremely powerful one-way device, right? That yeah. Just, like, the left you no way to fight back or even talk back. Right. Yeah, it was really hard, right? Yeah, and so yeah. you, you had people with these kind of magnificent speaking voices rule countries, right? Yeah, no, so it's just, it's it's about, like, what we perceive, whatever we perceive to be a trusted form of media yeah. will be most vulnerable to, right? Yeah. I feel that we should trust nothing. I'm a cynical, like, fiction writer slash jerk, right? Yeah. But it's, I think it's a good, healthy thing that now we're starting to understand and put the pieces together for how these sorts of things can be manipulated and why we should not trust them, right? Yeah. From from either direction, like if you want information about uh, something happening in the world, or uh, you are trying to develop an opinion about uh, some political idea, social media is not the best way to, not the place to look, right? right. Like, uh, or you have to be much more careful in how you filter, right, 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 or right. understand what are the signifiers of questionable content in your world, or or not. Yeah, 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 yeah. Just like anything else, and yeah. I think I think people were very techno utopian about this until the twenty sixteen election because things were going their way. Yeah. Uh, so now that they've, they've seen that it can go the other way too, maybe they will be more suspicious. Yeah, I agree with that. Uh, so I think that that's to the good that we're learning about it, whether anything comes of it or not, with yeah. respect to the actual uh, collaboration with WikiLeaks and Russia. Yeah. Um, uh, you want to wind this up with a little yeah let's, yeah, yeah. Let's, <laughs> so uh, at the we like to wind up every episode talking about 
uh, something that's either outside the bubble or uh, challenges our leftist outlook. Um, so I, my suggestion is both outside the bubble and just random shit. Sure. Um, because I like it. Um, so uh, I reacquainted myself with King of the Hill. A perfect television show. Uh, it's a show that I have loved that it's not, uh, but I haven't watched it in a while. It's actually hard to get on streaming. And for that reason alone, I think it deserves to be in random shit because it's hard to find these days. That's kind of true. I guess that's why it has kind of drifted away. It's not on Hulu or, yeah, or Netflix not. or anything. And I, I wonder think what they're, the reason for that is. I think they're making too much money in syndication. Oh, okay. So it's just on TV. Yeah, it's on television, on broadcast television. They're making gobs of money that way. So it's harder to find in a streaming format and for that reason alone i think it's worth uh seeking out because i just saw half of the first season or a few episodes of the first season and it's so very good and it is remarkable how like how true and and somewhat uh somewhat faithful it is to like basic conservative values sure yeah. it is a it is a it is by mike judge mike judge brought us office space he brought us Silicon Valley. Idiocracy. Uh, idiocracy. Also, Greg Beavis Daniels. Greg <laughs> Daniels created it. Yeah. Uh, who's behind The Office, among other things, right? So you have a bunch of people. Uh, I think Wyatt Senak used to write for it. Did you it? Yeah. So it's like pretty much every Texan at some yeah. point comes through. It, uh, is our, it is our second greatest uh, national product beyond Friday Night Lights. <laughs> yeah, right? I would actually put it ahead of Friday Night Lights. Um, maybe. Yeah, yeah. Maybe, yeah. But anyway, so it is something that is really... And I wonder how well it'll play now because it is so it is really conservative. And, but you have these sympathetic characters that are are great, and they become three dimensional. Yeah. Um, one of the favorite things, and I think I can't remember if this happens in the first season or second season, but uh, they discover like the the youngest boy, their only boy, discovers guns, right? <laughs> and rather than being sort of a Hollywood ending of like, oh, he decides not to use guns, they he learns to like love guns, and like, and and it's just like one of those things that. Um, at some point it comes out that the father's not good at shooting and everyone has to struggle with the fact that they will still respect him as a man, maybe, sure. if he gets over this. <laughs> Texas. <laughs> um, it's fantastic. And uh, and there's something uh, like deeply like, uh, you know, anti, anti-government or in a way that like, you know, you have a right-wing anti-government person who's just there to be the clown. Yeah. But there's something deeply resentful of like, bureaucracy and nobody has unfriended him yeah right 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 um so it's it's kind of a lovely like show about suburban texas yeah yeah it's and, it's a perfect show i mean i grew up watching it obviously, yeah and but, it's just yeah. got a real humanity i still love the character that's what i like about it is that it is it's dickensian and that it doesn't it's not particularly didactic like, right you never come away with it with like a yeah coherent, you every character acts according to how they you know yeah and no one's like composed. super amazing and yeah. sort of, um, Except maybe Luan. Yeah. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Sweet Luan. Yeah. Um, so I think, uh, and I think one of the things is so early on, I think in the first season, there's an Asian neighbor that moves next door, right? And yes. they have to like, and they ha and this is a recurring character. And I, I actually think it was a really brave choice that they made this guy, this guy who moves into like a southern neighborhood, a complete asshole he's, as well. He's he's very strong. <laughs> and like, but he's you know over time he is revealed to have a soul that is. Oh, he's yeah. always had a soul. Yeah, but like, yeah. To me, like I feel like that nails it. Like I, it's not like this perfectly. And I feel like at at that time, but also especially now, like if you had a minority character come into like a white neighborhood, they would they be would, the moral center, right? They yeah. would they would be like preaching forever. Yeah. And this guy is not in. He's yeah. like an Asian striver who's like materialistic and like, but also like able to put up a fight. He's right? moved to Texas for a reason. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> there is a, a feeling in his heart that Texas gives him, and he's yeah. hoping to find it. And yeah. he's a little bit disappointed that he is not. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. But there's something, um, yeah. So I think that's like a, a really brave kind of, and I, to be honest, he reminded me of people I grew up with in, in the Indian community <laughs> sure. more than something that was wise and noble, like yeah. moral center. I yeah, mean, yeah, yeah. He's like, He's a real person, right? right. Like Jesus Christ, an asshole to... striver. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. Um, so I, I love this show. I think it's worth rediscovering. I, I wonder how well it'll play because it's so. It is one hundred percent conservative in a way. Yeah, that, yeah. Um, it is, yeah, lovely. Yeah. It is. It is a. If you have ever wanted to take a vacation to Texas, but you fear that. 
just watch all or, of or it don't now. don't want to deal with the heat. And don't want to deal with the heat or yeah. But I I do love its humanity and it's you know I grew up around and I still have many many conservative friends and I love them. I know they think I'm an idiot, <laughs> but and I I we get along very well and you know like they are have been nothing but nice and supportive of me. Yeah. And, We've got along and shared, you know, life and space and air my whole life, you know. So, I I, I want nothing but the best for them. I, as much as I would like to see their ideology completely dismantled <laughs> and discredited, and right? <laughs> but yeah, you know, and uh, they think nothing, uh, nothing. I'm sure they wish nothing for the best for me either. But except the utter destruction of everything I believe in. Right, right. Yeah, but you know, we can, uh, as Texans, we can definitely all agree that you know. Uh, propane is a superior gas. <laughs> and, uh, yeah, I think it also allows. We should all learn Spanish. Yeah, yeah, and I, I, I really like the parts where it, they are just sort of making fun of things like New York. Yeah, and it's sort of like, oh wow, that is really funny. Yeah, yeah. yeah. New York and California and Austin. Yeah, absolutely. Um, in a way that's really funny, and it allows you to laugh at yourself. Yeah, I think yeah. the left doesn't do so doesn't well. do as much as it, it doesn't should. do so well <laughs> yeah. anymore yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, so yes my recommendation King of the Hill I totally recommend it especially as it gets picked up in the second third season it's just it's right on it's yeah. very it's you know it's not it's not really a it's it's like a it's a humane show yeah and there, there's definitely learning and growing full-throatedly seconded yeah uh, it's it, it's weird that we even have to recommend it. I yeah. guess I just think everybody has seen all of it. I think it's actually died out. I actually uh, saw uh, uh, the voice behind Peggy Hill, uh, at the uh, the Whole Foods uh, on Second Avenue. Oh my god! And I and I was wa- I was going to walk up to her because she's been in other things. Yeah. she's an actress, and I was like, this may be the only time I introduce myself to a celebrity <laughs> as a big fan. I love your role as Peggy she's Hill. Incredible. Yeah. yeah. So. Um, if only I had like my King of the Hill T-shirt on, <laughs> that would have been amazing. But yeah. Anyway, so King of the Hill—that's my recommendation. You had you had something you wanted to recommend outside the bubble? Yeah, I have, uh, I, have I guess three podcasts I want to recommend. Sure. I'll do them really quickly. So there's this one called Eastern Border. I don't know that. Which is it's kind of this Latvian guy uh-huh. uh, in Latvia. Uh, he's a journalist. He's very young. It's just an ongoing like history of the Soviet Union oh, from awesome. the perspective of somebody that whose family lived through it, right? Yeah. And uh, you from know, a, from a boot. From, <laughs> yeah, yeah, from, right. From a deck under a boot. Absolutely. And Latvian is now an independent country, but yeah. it was certainly a, uh, it was the Western Soviet Union. So yeah. a lot of money was pumped into it, but then also a lot of control, top-down control. Uh, so I, it's fascinating to listen to it's stuff that I grew up with and I think you grew up with like we grew up being suspicious of and curious about and well informed about the Soviet Union's abuses right? right a lot of that as a result of the way Russia morphed into a sovereign democracy right a lot of that has just been eliminated from discourse right it's just not talked about except on the far right right and uh, that's a problem because the Soviet Union was hugely massively ornately fucked up yeah. in a way that is fascinating as fascinating as the Nazis I think which we're all well versed yeah. in except for longer lived except for way longer lived way, way more, more powerful implosion. shit could have gone completely totalitarian yeah. any moment they were a very uh, powerful country and they controlled a third of the world yeah it's just it's a shame that younger generations romanticize it yeah it's as baffling to me yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, uh, anyway, so I recommend that podcast. It's very interesting to listen to mm. a Baltic person discuss mm. like the Soviet Union because they still learn about that stuff. Yeah. They lived it and they're still in it. Right? Yeah. Uh, another podcast I, I recommend is the Good Fight by with Yasha Monk. Okay. Uh, it's kind of uh, a way more highbrow version of of this podcast, I guess. Oh wow. Uh, he's uh, I believe he's German, but it's. Yeah. Uh, the oh, idea- I know Yasha Monk. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So the idea is he's just interviewing people with the. I- the the idea of like how do we stop populism yeah uh, left and right mm-hmm. and he's just talking about uh, how things are going all around the world and what you know can be done about oh, it great. it's a great podcast it's really uh, timely and, and vital I think uh, and then the third podcast I, I don't want to recommend the entire podcast because uh, I haven't listened to it all and I it's not my cup of tea generally speaking but it's it's there's one episode that's everyone should listen to it you should just go out and listen to it. Uh, it's the podcast If Then, which is a Slate tech podcast, okay. 
but the this specific podcast is called like Nietzsche with a 3D printer okay. and they interview the guy that uh, was shut down by the federal government for uh, putting out specs for 3D printing guns. Oh yeah, I think Angela was talking about this this, it, this episode. Or... It is fucking chilling. Yeah. It is one of the like most upsetting but interesting things I've listened to in a long time. That's awesome. This guy's a real. He's an intellectual like. Uh, but uh, the kind of intellectual that just gives me shivers and just listening to him talk about power and guns and the way that his view of the world and the way that he uh, views things now and in the future as far as like a gun maximalist uh, is something we need to reckon with Uh, and uh, it's, 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 it's just very interesting because you know how do you stop somebody from 3D printing their own weapon Uh, and what what does that even mean? What does that even look like? Where are we headed? Sure. If that's even possible, right? So, I don't know. I, everyone should listen to that podcast and, and just take notes and think about it. And yeah. I don't have any good answers, but just listening to it definitely opened up something, uh, a whole world that I was not really privy to. Okay, those are awesome. Yeah, I would definitely check those out. Uh, yeah, so I guess that brings us to the end. To another conclusion. Uh, episode. This has been episode 40 of Room of Requirement. Uh, thanks, everyone, for listening. Yeah, and uh, stay, stay, stay reasonable and resilient. And thanks to uh, Kevin Carter for producing our outro music. Yeah.